Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Look at MA Go. MA Go. And I'm just clicking on the time series. It is a terrible year for M&A. I mean, less than $3.5 trillion. You compare that to 2021, which was a banner year of about $6.5 trillion of deals done. I mean, this is the weakest year since 2013. How about 2024? Any better? Let's check in with Ted Smith, co-founder and president of Union Square Advisors. Of course, his highlight of his career when he's a managing director at Credit Suisse First Boston. I think we crossed paths there back in the day. Hey, Ted, talk to us about 2023. What did you see in the marketplace? And more importantly, what are you guys in the M&A biz thinking about 2024? Morning, Paul. Great to be with you again. Thanks. Uh, well, you hit the nail on the head. It certainly has not been a great year for M&A in 2023, off uh, almost half from uh, the peaks of uh, 2021. We saw a lot of fits and starts this year. Um, heard the earlier commentary um, with Danielle about where things are with the Fed. That certainly put some freeze on the market. The higher cost of capital for longer uh, meant that some folks stayed on the sidelines. Also, as the large corporate acquirers were thinking about whether they wanted to get back into the market or not, uh, took longer, frankly, than we thought at the beginning of the year. So it uh, we started to see some green shoots really in late uh, late summer and right after Labor Day. We do think activity is picking up now and will continue into 2024. Um, but we're we were delayed by about six months from our beginning of 2023 forecast on when we thought M&A would start to pick up from 2022, which itself was significantly down from 21. And Ted, when you look at though question around regulatory uncertainty, it seems like the FTC is pushing back against everything. Is that something that's top of mind at all? It certainly is. I mean, we think about it and obviously acquirers think about it. Such a big part of the market, though, today is about private equity uh, as acquirers, not just the strategics. And they typically are not as wound around uh, the issue from a regulator's perspective. And also we've seen a, an approach for a long time from the large strategic acquirers of asking forgiveness rather than permission to do uh, a number of these deals. So we think that attitude will continue to pervade. The FTC clearly uh, and the DOJ clearly want to flex their muscles here uh, amongst the, uh, the really large tech acquirers. And we think that will continue to be the case. On the other hand, there's a lot of other acquirers out there other than the Magnificent Seven that we think don't get as much scrutiny and will probably uh, rise up and, and participate in more M&A. 
Ted, the era of free money is over. You know, we've got a 10-year trading north of 4% here. So the cost of debt capital is higher for acquirers. How is that impacting kind of activity, uh, structures, that kind of thing? Yeah, we definitely saw a little more structure, um, both in terms of because of the, of the cost of debt, but also just uncertainty uh, in the market generally. Um, but the reality, at least for technology companies where at USA we spend our time, uh, is that the cost of debt is still cheaper than the cost of equity in most cases. So while it's more expensive than it was a year ago, two years ago, um, the, the total explosion in private credit that we've seen over the last couple of years <clears throat> has really made debt still a possible source of capital, a meaningful source of capital. Um, we just completed a $460 million transaction that was exclusively done in the private credit market. Uh, for a large private equity firm and one of its portfolio companies. So it's available. Yes, it's more expensive than it has been, uh, but we continue to see the private credit markets being really active, particularly in the tech sector. And Ted, I talk to IPO bankers for the bulk of my day and they keep kind of pounding the table on valuation discrepancy. When you look at private equity buyers who are in need to return some of the cash to LPs, are they going to cave on valuation or how are those conversations going to play out? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think um, I, I, we continue to think that the that the IPO market is going to be tepid going forward. I was an IPO banker for the first phase of my career, and so I've seen this up and down movie before. But we really just don't see a lot of product likely to come loose in the IPO markets. We do think those private equity buyers who do need to return capital uh, to their LPs are more likely to pursue sales uh, to either strategics or other private equity firms but far more frequently. Uh, and at more volume than we'll see in the IPO market. And if they do cave on value, we think that's going to be the exception uh, to pursuing an IPO rather than the rule. Hey, Ted, I know you guys at Union Square Advisors, uh, you know, traffic a lot in the in the tech space. If I go out to Sand Hill Road and, and look for some capital, or if I just go talk to the folks out there who are the VC folks, who are the real capital folks out there for the tech industry, what's the mood out there on Sand Hill Road these days? I think it's, uh, we're glad 2023 is almost in the rearview mirror is one big part of that. Um, there continues to be a lot of focus around uh, investment around all things AI, all, although I think the, uh, the irrational exuberance around that is even coming down a bit. Um, again, I, I used the term green shoots earlier about what we were seeing in M&A. We're certainly seeing a, a little bit of an unloosening of the purse strings in earlier stage VC, which obviously then leads to mid-stage and late-stage VC investing for the right companies. Um, so I think right now the, the mood is we're going to get through the end of the year. We're going to take stock of where our portfolio is, but we want to put more capital to work in 24 than we did in 23. And looking at 24, how does that timeline play out? Do we see a flurry of activity, call it second quarter ahead of a, an election in November and elections globally? Or how does that shape up in 2024? It's a really good question. It's somewhat ironic that we're sitting here talking about that the more stable year is going to be the election year than the year that we just went through. Um, but we do think that that may there at least for the first half of the year, that may be true. Uh, we're working on a number of transactions where we've been in prep mode for the fall that are going to launch in January. I expect our competitors are doing exactly the same thing. So we do see sort of a Q1, Q2 flurry of activity well ahead of what we've seen in 2023. And then the uncertainty that the elections always inject into the markets may take over as we hit summer and, and early fall leading into the elections. As we all know, markets hate uncertainty. So we'll see some up and down on that. We may see 
some slowing in both the investing and the M&A life cycle as we move closer to the election. Um, and then we, we may see a lot of activity post-November once it's clear one way or the other uh, which way things are going, at least in this country. And Ted, one of the things that's that's new to me, at least compared to when I was uh, in your game um, on the street, is the is the growth of private credit. How important is that to just getting deals done? Because we we talked to a lot of private credit people, and the capital is flowing into their funds like crazy, and they're really really active. Talk to us about that private credit business and what it means for your M and A market. Yeah, it's it's today, Paul, it's north of a $2 trillion asset class. So to your point, wow. a lot of money has gone into it. Um, we continue to have that be an incredible part of the work that we're doing in our capital off of our capital markets desk. We're not underwriters. We're arrangers, but we still have a tremendous business led by Mike Meyer, who's driving that for us. Uh, we, they're part of virtually every deal that we do on the financing side, unless it's a pure equity deal. Uh, and then when we're talking on the M&A side, if, if there is going to be a debt component associated with it, again, we'll tap a broad range of relationships in that private credit market. So that's a long-winded way of saying they've become incredibly important, not only to our business, but to the tech business broadly over the last five years. And we don't see that dimming at all. And how does that structure play out in 2024? Are we seeing a mixture of debt being brought on in some of those cash offers? Do you see um, kind of earnouts being part of that in 2024? We've seen more structure. We've seen some earnouts. We've seen other sort of bells and whistles, if you will, uh, higher um, preferences in certain investments. Not in every case, but in some over the course of 2023, as people uh, evaluated uh, being a little more risk averse. I think as we go into 2024, I heard the, you know again the great conversation about what's happening in and around the Fed. As we start to see some stabilization and some easing there, um, we think some of that structure may fall away a little bit. Um, but generally, we that market will be very active, and we will see a combination of debt capital used and cash on hand by strategic buyers, and for private equity buyers who again have big checkbooks but also like to use debt to increase their returns. We think they'll be very active in doing that in 2024. Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts here. Ted Smith, he's a co-founder and is president of Union Square Advisors. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. 
Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going to go to Big Pfizer, uh, Big Pharma here. Pfizer, uh, the stock off pretty substantially today, uh, falls to its lowest in 10 years on a disappointing uh, forecast. And I'm looking at the stock right here. I'm going to bring in Sam Fazelli. He is the head of European research, and he's a pharma analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in London. He has a PhD. Um, not really good with the Zoom thing, but he's pretty smart, I've been told here. So, Sam, what's going on with Pfizer? These are the great, great people that brought us the COVID vaccine. Stock's down 50% year-to-date. It's given up so much of kind of what it gained during the COVID period. What's the story on Pfizer with the guidance they gave and kind of maybe the longer-term view? Yeah, hi, Paul. By the way, I'm fully zoomed up here, so okay, I don't know go. what that Zoom thing was. So, no, look, I mean, it's I, – I, Literally, I don't you know if you the guys only do... one left in the office. Let me just – for the people on uh, – uh, Can you see this? YouTube. All right, I'm making, a, I'm making a phone call to somebody. This is ridiculous. It's a no, Wednesday. No, no, no. They're all, they're, all, um, they're all having tea. No. It's England, uh, yeah, and it's tea yeah. time. Come on. Right. Um, no, look, the um, – the thing with Pfizer is that there's been this uncertainty since the massive boom in COVID vaccine sales, et cetera, as to what is this, what is the long-term shape of this business? And, you know, frankly, we've just had cut after cut after cut. And we're now being told that maybe next year, instead of the 8 billion that, that consensus was looking for for COVID vaccines, it's going to be five. Wow. Maybe instead of the whatever 5 billion of Paxlovid um, sales, it's going to be three. So, you know, that's a big cut. But in, in reality, if you take out COVID and you take out the acquisition they've just uh, completed today or yesterday, um, the at least uh, going forward, if you take those numbers out for 2024, you're still a couple of billion or a billion or so short of consensus. So it's not just about vaccines. It's not yeah. just about Paxlovid. Business is tough for this company, which is why they're doing the deal they're doing. Sam, you mentioned the deal they're doing acquiring CGen, a, a cancer drug manufacturer. What could yeah. Pfizer have done or should Pfizer have done differently with the benefit of hindsight? It's down 57% from a December 2021 peak and lost almost $200 billion in market value. Yeah, I, I honestly don't think it's something that, I mean, clearly they could have had a more exciting pipeline. Um, you know, if things had gone better for them in the obesity drug that they reported a week or two ago, um, there are uh, quite a lot of headwinds for this company, which is, again, why they're doing the deal. The, the reality is it's just the, the, the stock is resetting to what the facts are in the world of COVID. And it was very difficult to to second guess those. Nobody knew how bad the vaccine fatigue would be when it comes to um, dealing with the um, uh, second and third year or fourth year of boosters. Nobody knows what it's going to be next year. I actually think, and I think they've said it themselves today, that they're being as conservative as possible on the COVID vaccine front for next year. It's They're assuming the same as this year but lower sales in terms of volumes, but lower sales. So let's see how this pans out. Is it going to be a, uh, a, a better year for them? Is this the low point from which guidance is going to start going up is what I think everybody's going to have to be uh, figuring out. Yeah, and when you look at the ANR function on the Bloomberg terminal for Pfizer, which is analyst recommendations, it's right, as Sam was suggesting, 14 buys, 14 holds. The street has no idea what's going on with, with this name. Um, Sam, let, let's broaden that out a little bit. You mentioned the uh, the weight loss drugs, and that is, boy, if 
if AI was a with the early part of 2023's uh, driver of the market, it seems like these weight loss drugs have been the the driver for the second half of the year. Um, big, big story here. Can you, I, and I know you guys at Bloomberg Intelligence have done a ton of work on this, have a big, big seminal research report out on this market here. Can you frame out kind of where we are today with these weight loss drugs and, and how much of a driver is it for the pharma industry going forward? Yeah, so for the industry as a whole, let me just start with your last question. I think a lot of people are getting into the game. You know that um, Roche has just got um, announced a, a deal. You've got uh, AstraZeneca has got into this. Pfizer is doing its best to, to stay in the game. One company that did rule themselves out is Johnson & Johnson. Hmm. They said it's too crowded, too busy. We're not interested. And they have a pretty powerful oncology business. But, And then where are we going with this, with this, um, uh, with, the, with these drugs? The reality is that the more we see from them in terms of the control of other obesity-related side issues, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, and in time, cancer and other types of diseases that are the results of this um, upsetting balance in the body, which is essentially what happens in these patients. They are what we call um, a constantly under a state of inflammation, which is bad. I mean, inflammatory response. The whole body is under that stress when you have extra poundage around. So that's what I think these drugs are going to be shown to continue to be powerful. But we're going to get more data. We're going to get more competitive competition coming. Prices are going to have to go up. And I'm assuming volume will go up on the back of it. And Sam, is there an indication or an area that's most similar or reminiscent to you of weight loss drugs in terms of the potential market? I'm just looking at some of the stock moves we've seen with Novo and Lilly and a lot of the small caps, and it does remind me of the gold rush that was COVID vaccines. Yeah, except the COVID vaccines, you know, we were vaccinating an entire population to try and manage that pressure. And we I think we did, most countries did a pretty good job of that. But then you come back to the diseases endemic and most of the countries are now suggesting it for only 65 plus, certainly in the UK where I am. Um, and the reality is a lot of people got bored with it. I don't think people are going to get bored with obesity drugs. Some people are not going to tolerate them. Some people are not going to be able to take them for 52 weeks or whatever, 88 weeks, which was the latest data set that came out. But that doesn't matter. As long as they can keep their weight down, take a holiday from the drug, come back to it. I think this is a much more sticky market than COVID vaccines was. Yeah, very quickly though, is it reminiscent of kind of hep C in terms of the uh, the fact that these drugs do require you to be on yeah. them forever, essentially? Uh, yeah, but again, if you remember, hep C was a blip. We had mm -hmm. a large rise and then everybody got under control and hep C was curative. Yeah. We don't have a curative setting here. I think the best thing I'm going to uh, equal it to potentially, is if we get a highly effective Alzheimer's drug. Remember, yep. the obesity game has been in play for 10, 20 years. Now we've got effective drugs. I think we might see that with Alzheimer's in the next 10, 15 years. I mean, the headquarters for Bloomberg in London is spectacular. <laughs> Queen Victoria Street. It is the absolute coolest building you'll ever see. I wouldn't know. And these knuckleheads are not yeah. in the office. I'm going to make a phone call as soon as we're done here. Sam Fazelli, head of European research. Uh, he covers all the pharma stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence, one of the top pharma analysts in the city of London for Bloomberg Intelligence. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York Station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Some news out on Tesla today. Uh, they're recalling 2 million cars to fix autopilot 
safety flaws. That sounds kind of important. Let's check in with somebody who knows this stuff cold. Steve Mann, global auto market research leader, Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in Princeton, New Jersey, and that in and of itself is news because for 10 years he ran our Asia business for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, somehow he got back into this country despite all my efforts to keep him out. <laughs> He's a good man. He's a great analyst. We appreciate getting some time. And, and Steve, don't be afraid. You can get on that New Jersey Transit and get up to New York City, the capital of the financial world, anytime you want. Will do. Thanks Will for do. joining us, nice Steve. What do we here. make here of Tesla here? Is this a problem? I mean, this sounds like a kind of a standard auto issue. It, it is. It is a standard auto issue. If you just look at the surface, um, it's two million cars. This is a lot of vehicles. It's everything they've built so far. Um, it's, it's in terms of cost, it's a minor change. It's, it's an over the air uh, uh, fix. But what's really, um, I think, will get into the investor's mind is how is this going to impact this company going forward? Because they do have an aggressive target to uh, roll out AI, roll out autonomous vehicle at level five, fully automated by next year. So now this recall, it's about a simple fix at the level two, a much more basic level in uh, driving uh, automation. So it puts in the question, like, look, you know, is, is, is Elon, is uh, Tesla gonna get to a level five, a much more sophisticated level next year? And Steve, when you look at it, you mentioned that it's an over-the-air over software fix. Uh, this is a two-year probe. So when you talk about expectations for fully autonomous vehicles, kind of where could that target move if this is just a signal that, again, Tesla is going to have to punt just a little bit? Well, you know, I, th I think it, it, the fix is kind of small. And like you said earlier, it's, I think it's a little bit too early to say if this was, was significant delay that. But it does put into the investor's mind like, you know, some doubts, right? If you look at the valuation for Tesla, it's pretty, a, a big chunk of it. It's about AI. It's about autonomous vehicle. And because of this recall, it's, it's likely to, you know, put some doubts into the investor's mind in terms of are they going to achieve it? Now, if they don't achieve it next year, I, I have no doubts they will achieve it. I mean, that's the where the world is moving to, right? AI. They're going to achieve it. Now, you know, there are some questions in terms of how they're going to get there. Are they going to get there next year? Or they, do they need to add other, you know, uh, uh, other equipment, for example, to get them there? Uh, do they have to add more software uh, uh, redundancy to get them there because of this recall? So um, delays, potentially delays, but uh, I, I still think they will get there eventually. Hey, Steve, you know, one of the issues out there as it relates to electric vehicles has been trying to get a sense of what the ultimate demand is for EVs. I just bought a new vehicle, had zero interest in paying any kind of premium to get an EV, so I went with the old internal combustion engine. Um, what's your think? What's your take on kind of global demand for EVs? Even Ford yeah. announced that they're cutting production of their F-150e truck. I think there's there's big huge differences depending on what region you're talking about. You know, we've talked about China. That's definitely going higher. It's you know they're selling one million vehicle EVs, battery EVs, one million battery EVs, you know, a uh, a month. That's how much U.S. sells in a year. So they're accelerating. Now, if you at you know if you're talking about U.S. and Europe, there's some delay. And the main reason why is the battery supply chain is not built out 
um, for the U.S. and European market. So what that means is the cost, the end cost of the consumer will be much higher um, because th they have to import those, those batteries into, into uh, those regions. Now, we have the in Inflation Reduction Act. You know, that's, that's actually coming online. And with that act, it's actually uh, what they're doing is limiting the amount of materials and components, battery materials, battery components uh, from China. That will also raise prices for consumer here. So there is some risk in terms of demand in the next, I say in the next three years. But because of the long term, this Inflation Reduction Act is actually the whole intent is to build out the supply chain, the battery supply chain in the U.S. And hopefully as those capacity, battery manufacturing capacity ramps up, um, uh, the cost will come down uh, for battery production and that's going to get passed on to the consumer and hopefully that will uh, uh, you know, create some demand, lift the demand up for battery EVs. And Steve, you mentioned the demand overseas. Just looking at the terminal, the financials from Tesla, about half of their revenue generated from the U.S. and just over 22% based on 2022 sales in China. How do those competitive dynamics, though, shape up given NIO and other companies operating in China and, as Paul mentioned, uh, yeah. U.S. competition? Yeah, um, it, it is. It is uh, it's, I think EVs in China, you know, China has always been a very hyper-competitive market for the auto industry. Um, it hasn't been for battery EVs, but it's becoming that. It's, you know, there's Neil, there's Xpeng, uh, there's Leap Motor. You can, you know, in the last few years, there's been a lot of uh, public companies, there have been the public companies that came, uh, that listed, uh, you know, and there's all, uh, there's all, uh, there's a whole host of private companies that are producing battery EVs. So it's, it's becoming a tougher market, but Elon Musk and Tesla still have a niche. They still have, I would say, you know, a, a majority uh, of the market in, in China for battery EVs. But if you look at, if you include PHEVs, that's a different story. BYD is the, the market share leader. But if you just look at the battery EV, Tesla still leads because of um, uh, the, the brand cachet it carries. So, uh, you know, uh, one of the issues here in the States, I think there is, and this is just my opinion, not based on any research, but just talking to people, I don't think the demand here for EVs is as strong as maybe the companies think it is, or maybe some analysts think it is. Um, what do you yeah, think? That, yeah, that's true. We're actually, um, you know, sales is probably going to definitely will slow down. Uh, you know, we're probably thinking around the 10% range, right, from, you know, high, uh, mid, mid kind of double digits. So it's definitely going to slow down, and I think it, a major story, major reason for that is the affordability. Like I said earlier, batteries are, are still being imported. Um, there's going to be bans in materials, you know, because the China actually owns the battery supply chain. And if you're banning that technology from China, then where else are you going to get the batteries from, really? But so that means it'll take time. It'll take time for the U.S. to build up the supply chain. And once they have the supply chain, I think the cost will come down. Hopefully by then, the, in, you know, the EV charging infrastructure will be you know, expanded uh, further to what it is, uh, what we have today. And, uh, and with the lower pricing, with uh, you know, EV infrastructure uh, built out, uh, charging infrastructure built out, uh, hopefully it'll create some uh, demand.
for battery V. And, but that's, like I said earlier, that's probably two, three years from now. Oh, I think we're going to take a break. Take a, 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 we're going to slow down a little bit until the supply chain catches up. Is the Cybertruck actually going to drive sales for Tesla? I don't think so. I don't think it's a high volume product for Cybertruck, uh, for Tesla. Uh, it's, you know, the styling is not for everyone, obviously. <laughs> Everybody, uh, you know, everybody's used to the traditional truck. They have to prove themselves. Uh, you have strong incumbents, uh, GM, Ford, and, and Chrysler, that they have to overcome the mindset of the, the average consumer that buys pickup truck to go with the Cybertruck. Um, so I don't think so, but Tesla is planning to roll out a compact vehicle. You know, some have dubbed it as a Model 2. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that could be the next, things, that next thing that we, we should be focusing on because that, you know, that, that, uh, that's going to help them not only expand into other segments within the uh, auto market, but also help them expand into other regions as well. Because pickup trucks is really yep. big in the U.S., but not so in other parts of the world. Right. Steve Mann. Absolute best, Steve Mann, Global Auto Market Research Leader, Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, he is back in the USA, as they say, based on our Princeton office. We'll be talking a lot more to Steve Mann about the global auto industry, unique insights uh, into Asia, given his time over there. So good to have him back. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing. The passion to keep investing. The best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Mike Green joins us. He's a portfolio manager, chief strategist at Simplify Asset Management, joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Mike, I'm not going to be paying attention. I'll probably be sitting on a train somewhere, but you will be paying attention to, as will other professional investors out there. What do you want to hear? What do you think we're going to hear? What should we hear, do you think? Well, I think the market has pretty much priced this in at this point, right? There's a 0% probability, slightly less than 1% probability that there's going to be any actual movement. The Fed's not going to you know, upset the apple cart in that process. At the same time, I think everybody is expecting effectively a stern lecture on financial conditions <laughs> and that we you know, really should be more responsible in our thought process. 
Um, and I think that's going to be the underlying story, right? We saw with inflation today that the Fed is actually rapidly moving towards this objective of 2%. Some people would actually argue, myself included, that we're probably going to overshoot to the downside. And that becomes the key question. But I think the, the one thing, if I were to make a quick observation, it's that everybody keeps pricing the markets off of 25 basis point moves. And that's a pretty good model when you're talking about hikes, because the Fed tends to hike in a somewhat conservative fashion. It was a surprise when they did 75s and 50s, contributed to the volatility in 20, 2022. As we look at cuts, though, those actually have about a 50-50 chance, about equal probability of 50 basis point cuts. and so. A lot of the statements around we're going to cut early, we're going to cut in the first quarter, I think are contingent on the idea that the only cut that can occur is a 25. I think it's more likely, actually, that we probably see a 50 later in the year. And that would suggest that the probabilities that the market has are not quite as crazy as people think. Right? If we were to wait and be more patient and not cut in the first quarter, or certainly not January, but instead were to wait and cut in July, August, September, et cetera, and do so in 50 basis point increments, that would be consistent with pricing, also feels probably more accurate. So what happens in the first half of the year, though, from a market's perspective, if the Fed, as you said, kind of punts until there's called a jumbo cut in the summer? Well, that becomes the real question, right? Because what we, where we are today is in a very bifurcated market. If I'm Apple or if I'm a wealthy you know, US individual, I'm celebrating the fact that interest rates are higher because I've got a significant amount of cash on my balance sheet or in my bank accounts. I'm suddenly earning a really attractive return on that. And with the retreat in inflation, that makes me feel much wealthier. If I'm a senior citizen, I've benefited from a 8.3% increase in Social Security this year that now looks like one of the greatest giveaways in history, right? So when we think about it from that perspective, actually, if the Fed starts to cut, it becomes actually a problem for those entities. On the flip side of the equation, we're seeing from things like the NFIB small business uh, surveys that credit availability is not loose for small businesses, that small businesses are really struggling. And the lower income Americans who need access to credit to pay their daily bills, they're also really struggling using credit cards, 30% interest rates, et cetera. So this is a very bifurcated market, and it really becomes an interesting question of do we get to the point where something breaks and the Fed is forced to do this? Or as many, particularly, that are active in the Fed, you know, Fed researchers, et cetera, are kind of hoping for it as the Fed behave in a proactive fashion. I think the odds of that are low. Hey, Mike, you've been doing this uh, a long time. Equities, credit, FX, commodities, all that kind of stuff. If we're in a higher for longer kind of range here, I mean, I guess we'll start cutting at some point this year. Where do you see some of the best opportunities right here, just across asset classes? Well, I, I think that there's a couple of interesting things that have happened that suggest as we particularly come into uh, the presidential election year that the opportunities are relatively limited for Biden to goose the economy once more. Yep. And so some of the areas that have fallen deeply out of favor would include areas in green investment, things tied to the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I would actually point to some of those as having fallen significantly enough that now as a contrarian play, they become somewhat interesting, some of the lithium plays, et cetera. Mm. On the flip side of that, and, and just to be very clear, the Inflation Reduction Act, terribly named because it can be used <laughs> to stimulate the economy, right. but it, you know we have to actually acknowledge that that will be one of the goals going into 2024. Um, the other thing that I would highlight is, is that we've now seen a really interesting event where Xi has made the pilgrimage to Mecca, right? Yep. And that, I think, is, you know, as we're seeing in the weakness of the Chinese economy, that was something that I called for earlier in the year that's certainly borne out. A lot of people had expected this giant, you know, giant China rebound on a China reopening. We're now seeing that their economy is very structurally weak. The is fact that, that something that, that continues into 2040, I think? 
Well, that becomes the interesting question because unfortunately, this is a situation with both in which both Xi and Biden need to stimulate their yep. economy. They need to figure out ways to make sure that we don't go into deeper economic drawdowns that could be proved problematic for each of them. For Biden, it would mean a failure to be reelected, or for the Democratic Party, it would mean a failure to be reelected if Biden doesn't stand. For Xi, it has far more dire yep. consequences. He goes out with his boots on. Yep. And so does that present an opportunity, you're saying, within Chinese equities? I, I think it's interesting if you look at some of the Chinese equities, for example, if you look at the large cap Chinese ETFs or you look at the... Like the uh, FXI is what you're looking FXI at? FXI would okay. be an interesting example of that, as would you know Asher, for example. Um, those are interesting contrarian opportunities where the pricing is, I would argue, um, underappreciating the potential for a stimulus type rebound. Gotcha. Just to call that out, the FXI is returned... Uh, a loss of 15% this year yeah. in, the way, in the face of the SBX being up about 21%. Yeah. So right, with, without about, recovering yeah. in 2022, right? Yeah. So it's not like it's a reversal from last year. It's been down fairly significantly. How about just kind of the U.S. versus international versus emerging markets? Where do you see kind of the best, I guess, risk reward here? Well, China certainly falls into the potential for an emerging market rebound. Yep. And we are kind of at this situation where if I look at things like oil prices, et cetera, they've retreated significantly. Many people were very bullish on it going into this year. Obviously, that's failed to materialize. That suggests that the growing consumption out of places like the emerging markets has been weaker than anticipated. We've seen supply cuts rather than dramatic additions, U.S. production being the notable exception there. Um, if I look at the emerging markets, you know, they clearly have growth potential. India is obviously mm -hmm. benefiting from picking up from China there. And, and I would highlight that that is the notable outlier in the emerging market space. But if I look elsewhere around the world, um, a China slowdown is really problematic for the emerging markets. And so you can get a momentary bounce. But if we're really looking at kind of the much broader picture of how this develops, we're now in this uncomfortable time period where it's about how do we change supply chains as compared to how do we dramatically expand them as we did under the China regime. And so I think emerging markets continue to be challenged. They continue to be in a situation where particularly with very strong U.S. dollar against emerging markets and high interest rates, it's becoming harder and harder for people to justify investment in many of those regions. If we can stay internationally, what's your view on the U.K. and Europe? It just feels like, again, you pointed to Bloomberg TV talking about the IPO market. For all intents and purposes, Europe is nil in that front. Well, I think something really interesting is happening in Europe in that they're suddenly actually facing the same thing that they did with Japan in 1989, right? So if you look at the 1980s, Europe enjoyed quite a bit of schadenfreude at the idea of the United States becoming, you know, second fiddle to Japan. You saw that exact same type of schadenfreude as it related to China. And what changed it, of course, was Japan began going after the European auto market. Same thing's happening right now. China going after the European auto market, I would argue, has been one of the key catalysts in changing the tenor and tone of behavior towards China. I think that's one of the reasons why China is slowly backing away from some of its aggressiveness on trade. Um, on the flip side of it, Europe itself is just so structurally challenged that it becomes a really interesting question of how far does it have to go before change actually starts to emerge. And we just have not seen an incredible amount of emphasis on growth in Europe. They've effectively tried to you know, limit the amount of damage to the euro, limit the amount of damage to their economy from terrible choices they made around energy in particular over the last decade. And to change that is going to require a radical reimagination re of Europe where they try to go for growth as compared to preserving something that really can't be preserved anymore. Have you ever gotten involved with crypto or what is your involvement or exposure to crypto? 
Uh, well, so because uh, that—that's not my generation, but I mean, I yeah. Well, I think I, I think I think you and I are roughly the same generation. But um, look, I think that there's some really interesting stuff around crypto. It has some of the same positive bubble dynamics associated with um, you know the build out of the internet in the late 1990s. Yep. And I think that there's actually an incredible need to move to what I would call digital securities, right? Digitally native securities. The idea of a smart token that has far more information contained in it than a QSIP does, for example, opens up the ideas of creating all sorts of interesting structured products, investment yep. vehicles that people could desperately use, et cetera. Um, but crypto itself is basically a technology now in search of, that, of, of yep. that need. And I think it's a fascinating insight in terms of crypto itself that the only thing we have is speculation after yep. 10 plus years. All right, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate getting you in our studio. Mike Green is Portfolio Manager, Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.